Scripture reading this evening is going to come from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, that will be in page 2. Page 2, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, uh, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. If you're unable to be here with us this morning, we'll, we'll briefly update you on what we talked about and give a brief review so that you're up to speed on why we're talking about the things tonight that we're talking about. This morning we asked the question, can I believe both? Can I believe both? And when we think about that, I, can't, I don't have the screen down here, so I'm not sure what you're going to be looking at. Hopefully I can stay on track with what you're looking at. Uh, as, as we think about those things, the, the question, the reason why we ask the question, can I believe both, is because there are some in the world today, that, particularly in the Christian faith, that believe that you can believe in both the Bible and in the theory of evolution. And so as we discuss those things, we, we came to a conclusion based upon what each side said, and came to the conclusion that they are simply not compatible with one another. We said they're not compatible in what they say about the origin of the universe, the beginning of the universe, and the cause behind the universe. We said they're not compatible in what they say about the age of the universe and the span and time in which it originated. We said that they're not compatible in what they say designed life. That they're not compatible, number four, in what they say establishes morality. And number five, they are not compatible in what they say about the presence of a soul. Based upon the fact that these two uh, sets of beliefs are incompatible, we then consider some implications. Implications uh, based upon reason and logic. And what do reason and logic lead one to conclude? They lead us to conclude that if evolution is true, then scripture simply cannot be trusted. It cannot be trusted because it would be contrary to what scripture says. It leads one to conclude that if evolution is true, then morality is subjective, or at the very least, non-existent. That, number three, if evolution is true, then Adam and Eve and the origination of sin are fiction. That the garden scene didn't actually happen. That it's just an allegorical story, and that perhaps if evolution is true, then there's nothing that we can really glean from that story other than just some principles and not actual history. Number four, we said that reason and logic lead one to conclude that if evolution is true, that Jesus was at best misinformed or at worst a liar because Jesus said that at the beginning God created both male and female. Male and female, he created he them in Matthew chapter 19. And he also talked about the important fact of listening to Moses. And Moses in Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 says that the Lord created the, the heavens and the earth within six days and on the seventh day he, he rested. And so Jesus would have either been misinformed, which would have made him less than perfect, which would then lead us to conclude that he's not worthy of being followed as Lord, or he was a liar. And so based upon that conclusion, if evolution is true, then Jesus isn't Lord. He's not worth following. And so there's no reason then to marry Christianity with evolution. 
And finally, the reason logic lead one to conclude that if evolution is true, God is ultimately stripped of his glory. He's, he's relegated to nothing more than just the, the honorary first cause of a, of a Rube Goldberg effect, uh, Goldberg effect in which the, the chain of events happens just by someone pushing uh, the very first ball to get the, the domino effect started. And so this evening, considering that brief review, we have our, our lesson broken into three parts. To three parts. The first part, some questions that theistic evolutionists will bring up. Well, what about this? Or what about this? We'll discuss some of those things. And then based upon all those questions, we'll kind of look at those questions and boil them down into three categories. What, what categories do they fit into? And then as we close, we'll have some food for thought, some questions for theistic evolutionists to consider. And so questions from theistic evolutionists. The first question that sometimes a theistic evolutionist might raise is, isn't it true that the Bible is not a science textbook, they might say. That the Bible, as we, as we referenced earlier this morning, that the Bible tells us who, but it doesn't tell us how. That the Bible's not presented to us or for us in order to give us scientific formulas or to present for us certain data. And while this is true in the sense that the Bible is not necessarily designed as a specific textbook for science, that that was the total sum purpose of, the, its, of its writing and of its creation, Whenever the Bible speaks on something, when it speaks on a subject, it is true in whatever it says every single time. And if we think about it, if the Bible is wrong about special creation taking place over five to 10,000 years, then it's not just a little bit wrong, it's over a million times wrong. And it's not something that we can just brush away or ignore. It's over a million times wrong if evolution, the theory of evolution that, that says, or, or, or those origins that, that are derived from that theory, say that, that it came from about three and a half million year, billion years ago. And so if, evo if evolution is true, and the Bible is wrong, and it's not just wrong a little bit, but it's a big mistake, it's a million times wrong. But secondly, another question that is often raised, well, couldn't God just use evolution to create everything after maybe he, he started it and maybe he created all the elements and all the, the particulate matter and just kind of set it all there and just stepped away and, and let, let evolution take its course? And so when someone says, couldn't God use evolution to create everything? Well, well sure, he, he could have. He, he can, he's omnipotent. He could do whatever he would like. But the problem is, that's not what Scripture tells us. And should one pick up the Bible without any other frame of reference, without any other, uh, I guess, uh, uh, certain doctrines from, from geology or from, from, from the science realm with regard to evolution, without any other frame of reference in those areas, should one just open up Genesis 1 and 2 and, and 3 and, and really other places that, that other writers talk about the, the creation? But they couldn't come away from those readings any other way than to, to see that God created the world in six days. And we talked about the fact that it, this morning, that had, if that were the case, that, that everyone up until Darwin and his contemporaries, that up until that point, everyone would have believed falsehood, that the, that the world would have been created in six days, and that the Holy Spirit would have been responsible for that. But as we understand it, just looking at what the Bible says, what the text says is that the Lord created the earth in six days, and the universe in six days, and he did so. Everything was finished, as Boone read just a moment ago from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And so another question, could God have created everything and then allowed evolution to take over, as we mentioned a moment ago? 
in other words, couldn't God just be the cause, but only through natural means? Or, or couldn't God just be the one, kind of like a puppeteer, pulling some strings, uh, pulling the strings of evolution along the way? And again, sure, he, he could have been, but that's not what we find in Scripture. We find, again, that the creation was completed uh, on the sixth day and that the, the, the Lord on the seventh day rested. But I want us to consider carrying this idea out, uh, this, this line of thought out a little bit further. If God could perform a miracle to get it all started, could he not have also worked a miracle or performed a miracle of creating the entire universe in six literal days, six 24-hour literal days? Why would he then take it to that next level? If he could start it, if, it if, if we need God, as theistic evolutionists would ascribe to that idea, if we need him and, and his supernatural power is necessary for these things to begin to be created, why would, God, why, why would we take away from God that he could have not have just uh, created it all to begin with at the very beginning? And so since the time of creation, if, if God has only ever worked naturally in the world, what do you do with the miracles that are recorded for us ad nauseum through Scripture. The theistic evolutionists would say, well, God got it started, but ever since then, God has only worked in natural means throughout the world, that he allowed evolution to take its course. Maybe he had some slight little nudges here and there, but it was all a result of of, of natural causes. What do you do with the miracles that are recorded for us in Scripture? And following that out further, what do you do with the miracles of Jesus? In Acts chapter number 2, verse 22, Peter in the, the uh, sermon, the first sermon of the Pente- day of Pentecost there, the, uh, the, the establishment of the church in Jerusalem, he said that Jesus was a man approved by God by many signs and wonders. In other words, part of the reason why Jesus was someone that they should have followed was because God put a stamp of approval on him and the fact that he was able to work those signs and miracles. Well, if we take away the, the miraculous ability from, from Jesus and remove those, those uh, characteristics from him, does he then continue to be a man approved of God? I would think not. And so if he wasn't approved by God, then should we approve of him as our Savior? No? If not, why would a theistic evolutionist follow him? What about the resurrection? Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, reveals to us something that reminds us of the central focus and central nature of the resurrection. If Jesus didn't work miracles, that's one thing. But if, he, if God only ever worked naturally throughout, throughout time, then what do we do with the resurrection? Look with me at chapter 15, beginning in verse number 13. It says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, talking about those of us that, that have already gone on uh, in death or those of us that later on will, if there's no resurrection of the dead to, to that great eternal day, then Christ is not risen, Paul's arguing. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are, all, are found false witnesses of, of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in, the, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, it, if, if in this life only we have hope, in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiful, uh, pitiable. 
if, if Jesus was not resurrected, if, if Jesus' resurrection did not happen, and that's what we're led to, the conclusion that we have to, to draw ourselves to, with this idea that, that God has only ever worked naturally through the world after the original creation, then Jesus was not resurrected, and therefore, in the words of Paul, we ought to be the most pitied, because we're living our lives following a man that is still dead, that was, that was just like any other man. And so if we deny God's supernatural work in this world beyond just maybe that first nudge, then we are led to the conclusion that our lives as Christians are pointless and they're worthless. Another question. How do we know the days of creation are literal 24-hour days? Some people will then carry this out based upon 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8. Everyone turn there and look at, at what is said here. Many people will look at this particular passage and say, well, Based upon this verse, it helps me to maybe reconcile what the theory of evolution says with, with Scripture. There were some that were worried about the fact that Jesus hadn't returned yet. And so Peter is reminding them that God's promise is not slack. Notice in verse number 8. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that, the, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, verse 9, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some people will look at Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 8, and they'll say, see, here, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is just but like a day. And so therefore, God and, and, and time to him is, a, is of no consequence. And so for you to say that, that, that these days in Genesis chapter, chapter number 1 and 2, that they had to have been literal 24-hour days, well, that's, out, that's not outside the realm of possibility that they could have been longer, that they could have been ages. And so we're left with a few different uh, alternative theories that individuals uh, purport. There's the day-age theory that says that each day in the, the creation account was actually thousands upon millions of years. That, that, that they just were simply representative. That they, that they weren't actually only 24 hours, but that they were rather long ages of time. There's also the gap theory that says that maybe even before Genesis 1-1 or sometime between Genesis 1-1 and the rest of Genesis 1, that there was a gap of time. That yes, maybe God created everything and it happened within a six, six literal day time frame, but maybe there was a gap of time in there that, that spanned a lot of, a lot of, of time that, that we don't are, have revealed to us. And then there's the pictorial or revelation theory that says that simply these days are not actual days. They're, they're just basically kind of pictures for us to help us to kind of visualize it in some sort of format. And so what do we, what do we make of this? If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, first and foremost, we need to realize that, that, that Peter is not drawing the conclusion that a literal 24-hour day in our time, in our realm, is exactly the same as a thousand years. He's just saying, whether God made a promise today or a thousand years from now, you can trust in it. You can trust that God's going to be sure to that promise and, and reliable in it. And, he's, and so, for that matter, you, why, if you were to carry that out, the only equivalence that you would find here is that the day would only be equal to a thousand years, which is still far, far less than what evolutionists and other secular scientists will say. And so you can't really use that, that verse for that reason because it's out of context and it still doesn't add up. But let's, let's continue on in thinking about this. Maybe, maybe in Genesis 1 and 2, these words meant more than just a literal 24-hour day. And so consider this. The Hebrew word for day in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the word yom. 
And it's translated throughout the Old Testament some, by Hebrew scholars somewhere around 1,200 times as our English word, day. But it's also translated a handful of other times, around 65 times, as time. In other words, this word can also reference things more than just a 24-hour day. It can reference just a, a general amount of time. Uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3, the, the phrase is used with regard to, to the word yom. It, it's translated as in the process of time or over the course of certain days. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 27 verse 7, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was I believe, a year and, and four months or, or something like that. And so David... The time that he dwelt there, they say that word time is the word yom. And so if you look at these verses, some might say, well, it, it can mean something more than just a literal 24-hour day. So what do, we make of, what do we make of yom in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Number one, as we think about this, consider what Hebrew scholars have to say. Again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. And so this is what other individuals have said about it, but, but these individuals spend their lives, they're, they're devoted to, to deciphering the Hebrew text and what these words mean. And so they say, number one, that the context demands a literal 24-hour day. That is necessary once you look at the big picture of the chapter. And we'll talk, that, that will bear out, uh, be borne out for us more as we continue looking through these ideas. But the context demands a literal 24-hour day. And if the days are ages, what do we make of Genesis chapter 1? In verse number 14, when God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. If the days are ages, perhaps thousands or millions or, or even billions of years, what does that make in this particular verse of, of the seasons and of, of the years? It then extrapolates that or you carry that out even further and you end up with even more time. And so... Number three, the day is defined by the period of light. The day is defined by the period of light. Notice in verse 5 of chapter 1 that God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And we understand today that as our, as our earth rotates, that it, is, it reveals a certain surface or certain part of the surface to the light source. Today it's the sun. Uh, in verse 5, in this particular case, the sun had not been created yet. And so what exactly that light was beforehand, there's, there's various debates about that. But it, that idea of the, the sun turning or the, the earth turning to face the light source and then turning again and facing away from it being that which divides between a, a, a day and a night. And so the day is defined by the period of light. And number four, every other time a number or ordinal, or the, like first or second or third, is used with the word yom, it always refers to a 24-hour day. So if you were to look through all the Old Testament and find where it said on the, on the first day or one day after such and such, that in every one of those cases, it's always referring to a 24-hour day and not just a general period of time. Number five, the plural of the word yom, again, also refers to 24 hours. You can't find it in the Old Testament in any place where the plural of the word yom means something more than just one 24-hour day compounded by the fact that it's plural. The number six, the meaning of evening and morning. 
You can see this repeatedly throughout the creation account. Verse number 5, continuing on in that verse. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Very clearly, it's, it's defining for us this idea that there is a distinction between one day to the next because of the fact that there is a morning and an evening because the earth that's rotating is on its axis and changing the amount of time in which it's facing the light. Number seven, God could have used other words to mean ages. There are a variety of other words in the Hebrew language that could have been used uh, to, to indicate something more than a 24-hour day, but God doesn't use those words as he inspires Moses as the author. God uses the word yom, which most often means a 24-hour literal day. Number eight, we have to ask the question, how would plants have survived age number three? If, if we want to call it an age, we, we know it as, as, a, as day number three. But the plants were created on, on day three, but the sun wasn't created until a later day. And so if there were ages of time between the creation of the plants and the time in which the sun was created, how would then those plants be able to survive and, and participate in the process of things like photosynthesis in order for other organisms to survive and to live and to persist? Number nine, other Bible characters viewed each day of creation as a literal day. They didn't look at it as a day that was longer than 24 hours. We know this from Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, as we referenced it earlier, is Moses is making an argument for the fact that they ought to keep the Sabbath day, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Because the Lord created the earth, the universe, in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And therefore, that's why you should also rest and follow that pattern. If, if that's the case, then uh, we shouldn't ever have to go back to work this week because Saturday is still going on today, right? Because seventh, the seventh day is lasting for ages and ages, okay? And so you understand where that leads you. And then finally, as we, as we made mention already of from this particular uh, previous verse, the Sabbath day was a 24-hour day. And so you can see that there are a variety of reasons why that Hebrew word yom cannot be uh, reconciled uh, with something meaning long ages, more than just a 24-hour day. Next question, how can you deny the evidence for survival of the fittest, uh, for things like mutation, or et cetera? Uh, my, my response to this would be that, that I, I don't deny the evidence for things like the survival of the fittest. It, it, it is very much intuitive. Yes, those individuals in a, in a population that have better genetics for their particular environment will oftentimes be the ones that do persist to the next and perpetuate their genetics to the next generation. Same thing with mutation. You, you see that as a, as, a, as a process. The issue that, that you have to arise and ask yourself is, uh, how do you then extrapolate that into different kinds and into multiple generations down the road. Even evolutionist Hugo de Vries admitted long ago, he said, natural selection may explain the survival of the fittest, but it cannot explain the arrival of the fittest. It might be able to explain the fact that this particular uh, gene pool survived to the next generation, but it cannot explain how those genes ever got there in the first place. Because the, the theory of the idea of the survival of the fittest is that the bad genes are deleted. So how do you even get the, those good genes other than through things like mutation, which scientists will even, even recognize that, that uh, good genes very rarely 
profitable genes, useful genes, very rarely come through things like mutation. Mutation almost always leads to deleterious uh, issues within a population, and that, meaning that, that they lead to worse problems than they, than they do for better problems, uh, and better issues, and better, better uh, genetics within a population. What about observable similarities across species? Things like vestigial structures, and, and uh, uh, you'll, you'll read next week, or the two weeks from now, an article uh, in the bulletin about the fact that we share about 98% similarity in our uh, genetics with, with chimpanzees. How, how, do you, how do you rectify that, a, a theistic evolutionist might ask? Very simply, why does God have to change it all up from one species to the next? Why can't he just use the very fundamental building blocks of life to then uh, you, to build all of his species off of those very fundamental building blocks but just tweaking things here and there? In fact, should one allege that God should have changed things up would be to suggest that, that you know that other ways or other methods could survive in the environment that we're in. God didn't need to create other building blocks and, and other structures that are different in order for our species to persist in this environment because this environment has specific uh, characteristics and, and uh, fundamental, um, we've got an amber alert, fun, fundamental uh, characteristics that help to uh, allow species to live within them. I read an article this last week that that seven that, that the Earth is like a one in uh, certain uh, mathematicians are estimating that the Earth is a one in seven hundred quintillion chance. They said uh, that that you look in the universe and that, that the Earth is the only one and one in seven hundred quintillion uh, other opportunities for the for the Earth to have things like water and and for it to be an inhabitable environment. Well, God made this universe, or particularly the Earth, for us to inhabit it. And there are uh, specific and certain types of, uh, of characteristics and components that you and I need to have in order to live. And so to say that, that we have similarities with other species uh, indicates that, that evolution is true is, is, not, uh, is not fair to, to thinking of the uh, big picture. What about ge geology and the fossil record? There's a variety of, of individuals that say, that you can line up the fossil record, that is, uh, if you were to dig down deep enough into the earth, that you would see at the very lowest level, you would see a primitive species, and at the highest level, you would see a more uh, advanced species. And so, therefore, that, that helps to corroborate evolution, they might say. And they would say, well, as, as far as theistic evolution is concerned, well, maybe you can line up the days of, of creation in the Genesis 1 and uh, 2 account with what the fossil record says. But there's a variety of inconsistencies between the so-called fossil record and the order of events in creation. We'll just give you three. Because of the fossil record, evolution says that marine life came millions of years before birds. But Genesis 1.11 says that birds and fish were created on the same day. Secondly, evolution and the fossil records supposedly indicate that simpler, less complex insects existed prior to uh, higher level organisms like birds. But the Genesis account has birds created on day five before the insects, or also known as the crawling things, on the sixth day. Third, geologists' calculations estimate that the sun and other stars are much older than the earth. But the Genesis account states that the earth was created before the sun and the stars. And so we can see that the fossil record and other geologic theories do not uh, reconcile, do not marry up with what the creation account says. 
Number eight, and finally, questions from theistic evolutionists. Could the beginning of Genesis simply be allegorical and not historical fact? The question that we would ask in answer to this question is this. Where does allegory end and history begin? In fact, people will say, the theistic evolutionists say, well, Genesis 1 and 2 for sure are allegory. And really, we ought to probably carry that on to Genesis chapter 6 and all the way through Genesis chapter 11, and we have the account of Noah and his flood. And so if we were to say that the beginning of Genesis was simply allegorical, not historical fact, we have to ask the question, well, where does actual true history begin? Or is the entire Bible not just allegorical? Beyond that, the style of the book is historical. The style of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is historical, period. You compare the style of Genesis 1 and 2 with Psalm 104, with Job 38 and 39, with Proverbs 8. You see that those particular texts were more poetic in license, uh, having more poetic license in in the nature of of their writing, that they weren't using specifics in how God created certain things. They were just trying to be be kind of poetic with what they were saying. But Genesis 1 and 2 is very matter-of-fact in laying out things for us and what God did. Other inspired writers use various Genesis accounts and refer to them as historical fact, even proving doctrines based off of them. If, if the, the flood account is allegorical and wasn't actually a historical event when Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3 to make his argument that baptism is the like figure that saves us, then how is, what, is that to then turn baptism into something allegorical? And so when you boil down these three questions, or the, these questions, it fits into three categories. What, whether knowingly or unknowingly, theistic evolution is ultimately number one, either or read things into the text. That is, they, they find things that uh, they believe are in the text, but they're not actually there. Or, and, or, they reframe the intention of the text, such as saying, well, Genesis 1 through 11, it's allegorical. It's not actual history. Or they redefine the words in the text, as we mentioned with regard to the word yom, saying that it really means something more than just a 24-hour day. It means something uh, like a long age. And so maybe they don't do every one of these things, but at some point along the way, the arguments that a theistic evolutionist might make for their beliefs is, is by reading things into the text, by reframing what the text meant, or redefining the words in the text. And so as we close, some questions for theistic evolutionists. And some of these are, are similar and kind of overlap to what we talked about this morning. But if we can't trust the Bible on creation, how can we trust it on fill in the blank? Particularly, how can we trust it on what's going to happen after this life, at the end of time? What's going to happen in regard to things like salvation? If we can't trust it in what the very first pages say happen, how can we trust it in anything else? Evolutionists say that creation is flawed. How does this jive with the phrase that is repeated a number of times in Genesis 1 and 2, that it was very good? Evolutionists generally call evolution a tinkerer and not a master designer because they believe that there are non-needed vestigial organs as well as ways that they believe they can improve upon creation. Listen to one of my instructors talk about the fact uh, that, that he would have created certain things differently if he were the one that was creating uh, the universe and creating organisms around the universe. <clears throat> and so therefore, if he could think better than, than God could have, then that proves in his mind that, that God did not exist. And so <clears throat> for a theistic evolutionist, if they make this claim, if God's involved, 
Shouldn't it not be perfect? Should it not be perfect? How do we jive this with the phrase, it was very good? The next thing is the idea of evolution, the whole principle or whole, the whole process of evolution is taking disorder to order. And so we have to ask the question, does this make God a creator of disorder? If you're a theistic evolutionist and you believe in evolution, that maybe God just got that nudge and, and pushed it and got it all going, does this then make God a creator of disorder that, that he basically kind of threw a bunch of, you know, random particles out there and just kind of let them, the, the chips fall as they may, as, as the saying goes right? Does this got, make God a creator of disorder? Things to think about as a theistic evolutionist. How does an immaterial soul emerge from matter? If evolution uh, explains everything in a naturalistic approach and God is never involved in things supernaturally over time, how does a soul emerge from a species that is a, that is a descendant of, of, a, of, a, of a natural organism like, like, a, like we said this morning, we don't descend, the evolutionists don't teach that we descend from, from directly from apes, but that we share a common ancestor with them. At what point did that soul emerge from matter? What about Jesus? If Jesus is an identity that was uh, prior to creation, and he comes to earth and he fills this body. Uh, did he actually exist before he filled that body or not? As, as, a, as a man, he had to have had, and as we know uh, with regard to scripture, that he was a man that also had a soul, that he was a, that was an, had an identity outside of his physical body, and so do you and I. I was listening to a, a, a podcast, uh, not anything related to, uh, to this this week, but the guy basically said, as he's, a, he's a, uh, an evolutionist, not a theistic evolutionist, but he said, ultimately the conclusion that I'm led to is that we're just simply a bag of particles, that you and I are just a, a bag of particles. And that would make Jesus that as well if, if Jesus was simply a man without a soul. Others would say, the evolutionists would say, those that are not theistic evolutionists, but just simply evolutionists, they would say that Christians just believe in a God of the gaps, that anything they, anytime they can't explain something, that, that they just invoke God, and, well, God must have done it that way. As we think about that, the God of the gaps in Scripture, or is, is in regards to evolution, if you're a theistic evolutionist, are you making the God of the gaps in evolution? In order to explain things that don't make sense, are you invoking God's power in those areas as well? And then who or what is the master designer? And this ultimately is one of the biggest one, ones to me. Without appreciating things like design, how do we point non-believers to the existence of God? Romans chapter 1, as we read this morning, very clearly outlines for us the fact that the creation demonstrates for us that God exists. Now, I can't reveal to us all that God wants us to know about him so that we can come to know what he wants us to do, but his, his attributes are clearly seen, Paul said. And so if we take away God as the master designer of the universe from our repertoire, from our arsenal, if you will, how do we communicate to a non-believer and, and, and convince them and help to show them that God exists? When we ascribe to theistic evolution, we can't point to a great designer or an uncaused first cause or the unmoved mover. We're only giving God the credit for the first nudge. Why not give him the credit for the whole design? It's kind of like if we were to say, 
the person that provided to Da Vinci the canvas and the paint and the brushes, that they're responsible for the Mona Lisa, that Da Vinci's not responsible for it. Similarly, conversely, we think about with regard to God as the starter, if we just relegate him to the, that honorary first cause, then we're not actually giving him the credit for the design that we see in the world today, but rather just that old, blindless, naturalistic expl- uh, explanation of evolution that Richard Dawkins talked about, as we mentioned this morning. We've talked about a lot of science today. I understand that. And I know that these things aren't maybe the most motivational sometimes towards spiritual, holy living in some areas. But as we think about what we referenced earlier with regard to if Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is allegorical, I want us to consider as our, as our invitation tonight, chapter 3 and verse 15, in which we have what is known as the proto-evangelium, the first hint of the gospel, in which sin enters into the world, but God promises that a Savior is coming. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise that Jesus would come, that Jesus would crush Satan, and that sin would be defeated, and that you and I would have the opportunity of eternal life. That's what this is all about. That's why we're following Jesus. That's why we're defending the faith in the way that we are today, because we truly believe that everything we read here in the Scriptures is to be trusted. If you aren't trusting in that Jesus... We encourage you to do so and make that right. Become a Christian by faith, repentance, confession, water baptism. Or make your life right if you're already a Christian and you've gone on the wayside. If there's anything we can do for you this evening, we ask that you come as we stand and as we sing.